Before we get into this episode, I have a quick announcement to make. We are extending the deadline for the Astro Soundbite Sonification Challenge 2022. Now submissions will be due on November 18th, 2022 at 5 p.m. Eastern. We've gotten so many wonderful sonifications already, but we thought that maybe some of you might want a little bit more time. So if you're interested, definitely submit your sonifications. We are super excited to hear them. Now let's get into the episode. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impacts of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 62, Skeletons and Monsters. In honor of Halloween, my absolute favorite holiday, we had to have a spooky theme, so here we are. <laughs> and speaking of spooky, have you two picked out your costumes for Halloween? Well, I actually was never a costume kid when I was growing up. I really, really hated dressing up. I think it had to do with the fact that I really didn't like any sort of face paint or even temporary tattoos or anything like that. It really irked me. <laughs> so I didn't like dressing up. And so as an adult, I just didn't want to dress up. And then last year, I decided if maybe if I found a costume that I actually liked wearing, I would enjoy the holiday more because I like the candy part. I just didn't like the costume part. So last year, I went as Mr. Rogers, which was a hit. And I actually felt really cool wearing and I might reprise that this year for people who didn't see it. But actually this year, I think I'm going to do Marty McFly because I realized I have almost all of the pieces and I love Back to the Future. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I had some good friends do a couple's costume as Marty McFly and Doc. Ooh, and it was very funny. Perfect. Speaking of couple costumes, me and my husband are going as Jesse and James and our dog is going to be Meowth. Oh, that's so. very good. I don't get the reference. I'm sorry. What? Pokemon? Team Rocket? Blasting off again? Oh. Oh, I don't know Pokemon. Dang. No. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Well, I shall play the theme song after we record this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. This is the other reason I don't like dressing up because I can't ever guess people's costumes because I don't really know pop culture very well. <laughs> so it's like I always feel really dumb. No, I feel like the point is not to necessarily guess, it's to just dress up. Like, how often do you just get to dress up and then wear something completely ridiculous? Yeah, ridiculous doesn't do it for me. I want to wear something that actually looks good. So it's got to look good and be a good costume. There aren't that many of them. You've got high standards. See, I was going to go as James Bond because I own a tux, but then I thought, well, if I get it dirty, that would not be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> What are you doing for Halloween? Rolling in dirt? Eh, I hope to go to a party. One of those dirt parties? 
<laughs> okay, okay. So before we get into these astrobites, and since we've been talking about costumes and things, let's talk about what makes some objects creepy. One of the things that I always think of is dusty old things and places. So we're going to lean into the dust and the cobwebs. To start us off, what's the difference between dust and gas? Mm, yeah, that's a great place to start. And... It's actually, I think the best definition is the phase of matter and the particle size. So gas has to be in the gaseous phase. It can't be a solid, it can't be a liquid. And dust is usually either a solid or a liquid and almost certainly a solid in space since liquids really don't exist in space. So dust is solids, gas is gaseous. And the gas particles are much, much smaller. Gas is molecules. So they're much, much smaller than the dust, which can be, you know, a grouping of molecules. But even that, we're talking about 100 times bigger at least, all the way up to 0.1 millimeter, right? Small enough, but still big enough to be able to see. So the particle size and the phase of matter are what I think of this as the definitional difference. And then there are all sorts of secondary properties, the way they interact with light, for example, where dust scatters or absorbs light, we would call that extinction, and gas refracts light, bends it the way that light can transmit over the surface of water, for example, when you have a different index of refraction. So gas, being gaseous, has an index of refraction. Dust doesn't have a property like that. I'll also add that gas clouds are primarily hydrogen and helium, whereas dust can be thought to contain heavier elements that have been burped out by supernovae, like silicon, iron, things like that. True. Yes. And one other thing interesting to mention, you know, when we talk about gas clouds, right, we're talking about objects that are purely in the gaseous state. When we talk about clouds on Earth, they're actually liquid. There's small liquid droplets suspended in the air. So it's interesting that the cloud term on Earth and the cloud term in space describe different phases of matter. That's really neat. I knew that, but at the same time, I've never really thought about that yeah. and connected those two things. That's super cool. And thinking about the ages of dust clouds, do we know how they're measured? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's difficult. I mean... You basically get a, a series of upper and lower bounds by arguing different things. So you can infer them dynamically if, for example, dust clouds are thought to have formed by the density wave of some spiral arm sweeping through material. Based on how quickly that density wave moves through and how far away it is, you can make some arguments for how old you think those formed clouds of dust and gas are. Or you can do it or... Otherwise, you would probably do it not by estimating the age of the cloud directly, but by estimating the age of things associated with those clouds. So if you have young stars forming in a cluster with a bunch of dust and gas, then you put some estimates on the age of the young stars by creating, for example, a color, color diagram, and that can give you some sense of how old the associated gas and dust is. Another question that I was wondering is if there are certain points in galaxy evolution in which we expect more dust than others. And if so, where does the dust go? 
That's a good question. I mean, a lot of times in astrophysics, people just associate dust and gas. You almost always hear the phrase dust and gas and not just dust or just gas. And actually, because of that, we use dust as a proxy for gas because for the most part, cold dust tends to trace cold molecular gas well. At high redshifts, for example, we look for millimeter bright galaxies that can say something about where the most highly star-forming galaxies are because you see a lot of dust radiating as they're being heated by these very young stars. And final point, where does the dust go? This is a great question, and actually, the feedback processes that both form and destroy dust are not super well constrained in the universe, but almost certainly supernovae play a large role on both ends of the distribution, both in forming large amounts of dust and in destroying it. So supernovae, as they inject heat, uh, and radiation into their local environments. It's thought that they can vaporize dust that it formed uh, around them. So they're converting it into gas. Right. Yeah, and then expelling it. Uh, that connects a little bit to my astrobite. So we'll hear a little bit. And to give you the, the bottom line on top, it, no, there is not a lot of information concretely known about how dust is expelled from a galaxy. But what you were saying about the dust as a tracer reminds me of those great protoplanetary disk images taken by ALMA, right? That's all dust that is emitting in the infrared. But in fact, the gas to dust ratio in a disk is usually assumed to be somewhere around 100, I believe, because the nebula that formed a disk is mostly gas. And then in fact, we are living on made up of the little leftover dust. That's a really cute thought. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great connection. <laughs> also, since we're talking about ALMA, this leads right into the next question. How is dust detected and measured? Oh, well, this is easy. We take a vacuum, we go out, we vacuum up the dust, <laughs> we empty it out, and then look at it under a Check microscope. Check the bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, so one of the really annoying things about detecting dust in astronomy is that dust causes something called interstellar reddening, where it actually makes objects appear redder than they actually are. In fact, it's added to the list of things in astronomy that change the color of things in an annoying way that you have to account for. So we first discovered this in the Milky Way, and we can actually have pretty good measurements of the dust content in the Milky Way, where it's located based on other methods of ascertaining the actual spectra of the stars. And so we can calibrate what the relationship is between the amount of reddening and the dust. You know what's crazy is I found out recently that the theory of stellar reddening from the presence of dust wasn't actually worked out until 1930, less than 100 years ago. Isn't that crazy? That blew my mind. It feels like they would have figured that out earlier. Considering how significant it is of an observational effect to work through, yeah, it's very surprising. Right. Well, I mean, it requires telescopes of a certain size. And I think, I mean, galaxy studies is one of the latest fields of astronomy to begin to develop. It's still really developing. We don't really understand how galaxies evolve. There's a lot that's going to be learned. Hopefully, you know, James Webb will assist with that. But so the way that we would identify how much dust is in a distant galaxy, for example, would be either to use an empirical relation derived from the dust in the Milky Way and assume that the properties are the same, or to use a model for radiation transport that is entirely theoretically based and 
then you fit that to the spectra that you observe. And you say, well, this is what it would be, and this is what the model says it should be, and therefore we adjust the parameters until it fits what was observed, and the model reports out the amount of dust. Oh, so it's not a direct observation. It's kind of inferred? It's it's direct in the sense that like you need actual observations, but it's inferred in the fact that you have to choose some sort of underlying model. It either can be purely theoretical or you can use an empirical relation for the Milky Way, which requires the rather strong assumption that the dust properties are the same in the early universe as they are here. I don't know enough about this to say is a good or a bad assumption, but it sounds like you'd want to do something other than that to be certain. I'll also just add that the reddening and extinction law, which describes how different frequencies of light get blocked or scattered by dust, it's thought that this might differ across the type of galaxy that you're looking at. And this has really significant impacts on cosmology because for type 1a supernovae, we want to standardize their light curves really, really well. So the true color evolution of these supernovae are very important to get right. And if we see reddening happen in different ways based on different host galaxies, that can pretty dramatically impact your cosmology. So that's an area of very active research. Right. That is super interesting. Let's go ahead and jump into our spooky astrobites. First up, Alex is going to tell us about how our galaxy has some skeletons in its closet. I certainly will. Okay, Gary, I got to do the whole inflection, like the punctuation. It's called <laughs> galactic dust skeletons. They might be closer than you think. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully I did okay. It's written by H. Perry Hatchfield about a paper written by Swigum and others that was submitted to ANA Letters this year. Now, to preface a little bit, astrophysics is a trippy science. Because obviously you can't go and look at the things that you're studying in incredible detail from multiple different perspectives. You're basically looking at a 3D universe projected onto the 2D surface that is the night sky and having to play a bunch of different games to try and infer the 3D distribution to reconstruct it just from the information that you get, the light that you get from the night sky, right? And... This constitutes a significant amount of work in, I think, every subfield. I couldn't think of a subfield that doesn't need accurate distances uh, to be able to do their science. If you can think of one, then you'll prove me wrong. But in any case, on the galactic side of things, this is where Gaia comes in. We've talked a lot about Gaia and how revolutionary its data has been in its three data releases, but... Its precise astrometry of billions of stars in the Milky Way has really revolutionized our understanding of the local astronomical neighborhood and allowed us to reconstruct 3D distributions in a way that we otherwise very much would not have been able to do. With respect to our very local neighborhood, our prior understanding for how stars formed immediately surrounding the sun was that there was a partial ring structure of dense gas clouds known as the Gould Belt. Okay, and it spanned around 3,000 light years. This was actually first discovered in 1877. Wow. I've never heard of this. Very, very long time ago, yeah. So where is it? It's basically the dust clouds forming stars immediately surrounding the sun. So it's like the local filament? Oh no, we're in the Milky Way, you're saying? Correct. This is very small scale. This, so this is like our local interstellar neighborhood? Exactly. 3,000 light years long, so very, very small scale. Okay. 
Do they know why it would be around us and not other places? Right. Uh, great question. So it's thought that there are other little clumps of star formation, but the fact that this was first observed as a ring is potentially connected to the physics of how stars are forming into our Milky Way at large, so it could be useful to understand exactly what this structure looks like and where it came from, right? Cool. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this was the state of things between 1877 and 2020, when a Gaia data release led us to discover that actually, if you accurately reconstruct the 3D distribution of star-forming regions immediately surrounding us, you actually find a structure, a coherent linear structure, 9,000 light years long. Wow. Oh. So three times as long as this earlier structure that was proposed, and it's now known as the Radcliffe Wave. It was discovered and presented in a nature paper in 2020. By someone named Radcliffe? Radcliffe was the research center at Harvard where the scientists worked. Ah. It was named after that. It's actually so cool because you wouldn't be able to see this linear structure on the 2D projection on the sky. And it was only through really accurate Gaia astrometry that we were able to rebuild the 3D map. And you found a lot of these star forming clumps then fall along a very precise line, which nobody expected. What changes between the 2D projection versus the 3D that makes it to where you can see it? Oh, that's a good question. Something, something, distances. <laughs> I mean, based on exactly how you're looking at the linear structure, it can seem like they all fall along different spots and the one coherent shape can become completely distorted in a way that you wouldn't expect. So this is a weird geometry thing. Exactly. With that we're like kind of inside of it so we couldn't see it right until we knew how far everything was. Exactly. That's kind of like how the galaxies outside the Milky Way were discovered in the late 20s, early 30s. There was a thought that maybe these spiral nebulae were actually part of the Milky Way, but it was getting the accurate distances that made it seem no longer possible. I guess it also makes sense if you're looking out in a dome or something and you're seeing this 2D projection, things that are curving towards you could essentially stack a little bit and then projecting it onto a 2D planet could look shorter. Yeah, projection effects can get really trippy. And it's a wonder that we have Gaia and are able to actually do this science to begin with. But they reconstructed this Radcliffe wave and it's interesting for two main reasons. Number one, it doesn't align with the location of the local spiral arm of the Milky Way. If you just look at where the bright stars are, they call this the Orion arm closest to the sun. And you don't see an alignment of this clump of star forming clouds and the Orion arm. So that's one thing. And the second thing is it's extremely linear. It's basically a straight line. Whereas you would expect if it's associated with the spiral arm for it to be curved along the arc of the spiral. So this paper attempts to reconcile those two observational oddities. So what did they figure out? Why is it straight? Let's talk a little bit about the methodology. The authors looked specifically at what they call the Z21 sample from a paper published in 2021. And this Z21 sample contained OBA type stars that were found with color color and color magnitude cuts. These are very young stars from Gaia DR3 and the 2-micron All-Sky Survey, or 2MAS. And they do some smoothing to their map of half a million young stars, and they fit a line to it, 
and they call this the spine of the Orion spiral arm. This is where we get the idea of the skeleton of the galaxy. So this tells you where the stars are forming along the Orion arm. And now they want to look at this chunk of forming stars relative to the Radcliffe wave that they've discovered. And when they do this, the authors find A, a consistent offset of on average 500 parsecs between the Orion spine and the Radcliffe wave. Radcliffe wave, again, are, are the clouds that probably will form stars, and the Orion spine are the actual very young stars on the spiral arm. And they also find that the orientation of the two regions are aligned. So they're like parallel. Yes, exactly. And this suggests that potentially the spiral arm forced dust and gas to clump together into this spinal column, and that soon, after the spiral arm has swept even further through our disk, the structure might further collapse into a series of very young and massive stars. Oh. Wow, I have so many questions. So the spiral arm structure in galaxies is a density wave. So is this possibly a shock front from the wave? It's thought that potentially the sweeping shock front of the overdensity that is the spiral arm caused clumping of the cold dust and gas, and that you only saw this after some time when the spiral arm has swept through when you actually got coherent clumping along the Radcliffe wave. Could we see similar waves on any of the other spiral arms? I wonder if it's the fact that we're just so close to the stars that we've detected and to these gas clumps that allow us to resolve this structure in better detail than ever before. I haven't seen similar level of detailed analysis about coherent gas structures in other regions of the Milky Way. I wonder if we have the precision with Gaia to do it for other arms, or if it's we need another better Gaia in the future. Great question. I'm not sure. What is weird, and that it's something I'm still thinking about, the authors argue that from comparisons to other spiral galaxies, the straight line might actually be expected. If you break down the morphology of other spiral galaxies, they argue that the spirals are not, in fact, continuous curved lines, but a conglomerate of broken linear segments of star formation that, from a distance, seem to form a continuous spiral, and so, in fact, the linear segment might just be a consequence of spiral uh, density wave theory that we don't fully understand yet. Wow. Would that cause anything to change in our current understanding of other galaxies? Or is it just, oh, well, now we know that it's broken up little chunks? I would think that if we figured out exactly the physics behind what's driving the breakdown into those individual pieces, we would better understand density wave theory to begin with. I mean, we have like a bare bones theory behind it. Bare bones, ha ha ha, skeletons. <laughs> but the details are really not fully worked out yet. So this is just another piece of evidence that will hopefully lead us to a broader picture of how stars form within spiral galaxies. I will also add one final piece to this that's really weird. In addition to all these like projection effects and how the Radcliffe wave looks like face on, there's a vertical sinusoidal feature to the Radcliffe wave. In the vertical direction, the wave takes on this sinusoidal shape outside of the plane of the galaxy, outside of the disk, and 
Density wave theory does not account for this. They have no idea why this is. So it's linear only in the plane and it's wavy outside the plane? Correct. And the authors are unable to explain where that structure came from. In fact, the takeaway in their paper, they say, in summary, the formation histories of the Radcliffe wave and the offset Orion arm remain unsolved. <laughs> well, that's honest. <laughs> so we have pieces of the puzzle, but still a lot of open questions into what causes some of these shapes. That's super weird. I mean, it's not weird that it's a sinusoid because we see that all the time in nature, but it's weird, I don't know, to see it on such a large scale. And outside of the plane. Yeah. You know, what could have caused some kind of torquing that pushed it outside of the plane of the disc is surprising to me. But in any case, Guy has gotten us a lot closer than we've ever gotten before. So this represents the state of the art. And big thanks to Gaia for getting us this far. Well, thank you for bringing us that bite. Very cool. Yeah, you got it. And I think it's about time for us to listen to our super spooky, or maybe not so spooky sounding, space sound. What do you guys think? That was so nice. That was very nice. My guess is it's probably an image sonification based on the choice of the harmonies and the instruments. So designed to give an impression of something beautiful. So I'm going to go with uh, what's the most be planetary nebula. Those are the most beautiful things, I think. Okay. I definitely think it's an image and the sonification sweeps from one side to the other. If I had to guess, I would say maybe black hole outflows. I feel like I've seen some pretty pictures of those jets. Okay, so Will was right. Nice. It is a nebula. What? what? Yeah, I think we're on a roll. I was right last week too. So maybe, maybe we've turned a leaf. Some of us are on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, your time will come. But yeah, this is the Cat's Eye Nebula. And basically there's this star and since it's, it's dying, it's basically puffing out these huge clouds of dust. And it only seemed fitting, not only because of the name, but also dust. Is that not a supernova remnant or is it a planetary nebula? It's a planetary nebula, I'm pretty sure. Okay, cool. Excellent. Yeah, so of course, it was made by System Sounds and Matt Russo. Instead of actually it scanning over the image, it does this radial scan of the image. Oh, so they're scanning around like a clock hand. Mm-hmm, basically, yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen this. This is a beautiful image. Anyway, so it's scanning around it, and most of this is in optical as well as x-rays. Super cool sound and kind of fitting for this episode. Yeah, that's great. Very good. Excellent space sound. Yeah. You know, I've seen the Cat's Eye Nebula a couple of times. What I have only recently seen, there's a surrounding halo to it. If you really like zoom out, 
and that like view of it i really don't see all that often and it blew my mind just the scales involved yeah it's super pretty too anyway next up we'll hear from will about the mob of blue monsters coming at us in the distance or maybe not coming at us but they're they're in the distance they are in the distance so this astrobite is called did blue monster galaxies in the early universe sweep away their dust and this was written by sarah bodansky the paper is by francesco zipparo and others and that was submitted to the monthly notices on the royal astronomical society and not yet published now before we get into what these blue monster galaxies are I want to give a quick note on nomenclature, and it's more of an unfortunate note. This stuff always bothers me that what we call the oldest galaxies are the ones that formed when the universe was the youngest. So they're old in the sense that they were some of the earliest to form, but we don't see them as old. We see them as young because we're looking back in time, and they may not exist now. We don't know what they are doing now we'll we won't see that for another 10 billion years or however long it takes that light to reach us possibly longer so we call them the oldest but they're actually young in another sense and then the other term we use for galaxies might be evolved which tend to be the galaxies that are red and dead they're usually ellipticals and they are evolved they're further along in their life so they are kind of older in a sense of the age progression in the lifetime, though they weren't necessarily born earlier. So when I say older, I'm going to use it in the way that astronomers use it, which is to say the galaxies that are farthest from us, they were born earliest in the universe. All right. So what this paper does is they explore some of the galaxies detected by James Webb. And these are some very, very far galaxies, redshift greater than 10. And these are metal-enriched, bright, and relatively massive. So by metal-enriched, it means they have a lot of stuff heavier than helium. Now, the universe did not form with metals, formed with hydrogen and helium only. So that means it had to come from somewhere, and that somewhere is stars. Early, we're talking about a redshift greater than 10. And massive, we're talking about a billion solar masses, which is not big compared to the something like a trillion solar masses of the Milky Way. But in the early universe, big galaxies were relatively rare. So these are large among their peers. And the metal-enriched galaxies are expected to have a lot of dust. And all that dust should do the reddening that I talked about. And so it should make their spectra shift in the red direction. Do we know why they're metal-enriched? If they're so old or young? I suppose. Well, why they're metal enriched is because they probably have already undergone one round of star formation. The fact that they're so metal enriched early in the universe, does that connect to some like earlier epoch of star formation and stellar death connected to, for example, like pop three stars or something? Yeah, that's the guess, is that these were formed. The reason they're metal-enriched is because of the pop three stars that were basically zero metals and extremely large because metals, specifically carbon monoxide, is one of the more effective ways a molecular cloud can radiate away energy and cool and condense. Without that molecule, then the clouds have to get bigger for gravity to take over and collapse them down. 
So the top three stars, the earliest stars in the universe, were incredibly massive, lived obviously then very short lives, and created metals in the supernovae. So yes, that's the guess. I mean, these are Redshift 10. They're not like in the process of forming galaxies. They are formed. So, and the top three stars were so quick. I mean, we're talking tens of millions of years, maybe a hundred million years. So it doesn't take long to slightly metal enrich them. And the theory is that these would have a lot of dust, so they should appear redder. And, you know, there's going to be a red shift because they're so far away. So every part of their spectrum is going to shift further red based on where they'd be expected to be. The weird thing, though, is they're actually appearing blue because their emissions were in the UV and they're red shifted into the blue. So they're large galaxies, they're distant, and they look blue, so they call them blue monsters. The fact that they're blue doesn't actually tell you if they have a lot of dust. It just happens to be that their spectrum primarily shifted from the UV to the blue. But it also turns out when they look in detail at these spectra, the amount of dust is lower than expected. They should be reddened more, and these ones are bluer than they should be. And this is the question. How is it that the blue monsters don't have much dust? Everything says they should have a lot of dust, and they don't. So these galaxies are not only enriched by metals from a previous generation of stars, but are actively forming stars as evidenced by some UV bright portion of the SED, which is pushed into the blue. Correct. First of all, how many galaxies are in the sample? Yeah, recent paper by Windhorst and others published this year, and Yan and others published also this year, reported detection of about 20 sources potentially located at Z greater than 11, and I'm just quoting that from the paper itself. So I think the, those are the greater than Z equals 11, and this included some 10, so we're probably talking about 50, I would say. Is it possible that the galaxies are undergoing a second period of intense star formation, but the pop three population three stars that formed earlier enriched the galaxy with less dust than more recent supernovae would be able to. And that's why you see high star formation rates now, and also not as much dust as you get from supernovae that happen in a, in a local universe, for example. I don't know. This paper did not talk about population three stars. I have inferred that that's part of it, but they didn't say they did propose two possible mechanisms, which I will fully explain. And it's possible that one of those could include what you're talking about, where there is less dust to begin with. Well, the authors proposed two mechanisms that might explain the blue monsters. The first is that dust is ejected by radiation pressure from star formation. And therefore, it's being removed. So we wouldn't see it. Two is that the dust is located away from the UV-emitting regions. So that UV that gets redshifted to the blue just happened to come to us passing through very little dust. And the dust that is in the galaxy and should be there is just located elsewhere. So maybe, Alex, what you were saying is that it could be related to that, where the dust is less in certain regions or more in other regions based on different ideas about population three stars. So exploring the first possibility, theory one, radiation pressure comes from the rapid star formation that's being undergone. 
the stars are very luminous, they're very hot, and so in the radiation pressure from these young stars overcomes gravity, then you're going to push away the dust. That makes sense. And there's something called the Eddington ratio, which is just a very simple ratio of the radiation pressure to gravitational pressure. So where the Eddington ratio exceeds one, they would say, well, that's then in agreement with this theory. The gravitational pressure depends on the surface density of gas, the amount of gas per meter squared, because galaxies are mostly a disk. So we'll talk about surface density, not really volume density. And so that's a, more of a simple relation, but the radiation pressure is a little more complicated. It depends on the total flux of light that's being output by the stars. And that then depends on the surface density of the gas that has gone into forming the stars. And that then depends on something called the Kennecott-Schmidt law, which is an empirical relationship between the star formation rate and the density of gas. So here's the idea. The idea is the density of gas is the critical factor here because the star formation rate then tells you how much light these stars would put out, which then tells you how much radiation pressure there is. And the surface density of gas also tells you the gravitational pressure. So surface density of gas is a really critical piece to unlocking this. And what the authors did is they threw in a constant into the Kennecott-Schmidt relation. So said, what if we just like turn a knob and made it stronger, made the star formation rate arbitrarily higher by some sort of factor? This is kind of like saying how bursty is the galaxy. If we turn up the knob, it's a starburst galaxy. So the idea here is that they assume the same amount of dust that you would typically have for a galaxy with that metallicity. And then instead of saying that the surface density of the dust is smaller, they instead say, we're going to ramp up the star formation and it's just going to form a lot of stars instead. Right. And those young stars are then going to be very hot and luminous and blow away the dust that explains why Webb didn't see it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You're right on. But if listeners, you didn't follow this full train of logic, the paper is actually pretty easy to follow. The math is not terrible. So you can jump to that or you can just ignore it. And here is the main takeaway. The radiation to pressure, which determines if the dust will be blown away, depends on how fast the galaxy is forming new stars. So they want to measure how fast is the galaxy forming new stars. And what they did to explore that is they ran a bunch of models. So this is mostly a theory paper connected to the James Webb observations, but really a theory paper. And then they explored what would it take, what amount of star formation would it take to get that Eddington ratio up to one to have the radiation pressure blow away the dust, overcome gravity. And they found a value of this constant of 3.3 is the lower limit, meaning you need 3.3 times more star formation than theory would predict for galaxies in the universe. That seems like it should be bad, but it's actually pretty good. Because 3.3 is like a starburst galaxy that's undergoing a rapid phase of star formation. That's not an unreasonable amount for a short period of time. And it could be more even. When you say blow away the dust, is this to say that you're truly moving the dust to another region of the galaxy? And if you had a full dust map of where things were located, you would be able to reconstruct these blown out regions? Or is it to say that this dust is vaporized and no longer exists in solid form? 
Oof, that's such a great question. I actually don't know. So I'm going to just search it in the paper and see if I can find it. So it's described as an outflow in the paper, which to me indicates that it's actually leaving the galaxy. That's crazy. Yeah, it totally is. It seems like that would be a lot of pressure to make it go outside of the galaxy. There has to be some sort of, I'm sure it's called something else, but like ejection velocity or something like that, that it has to overcome similar to if you think of something leaving our atmosphere, but something leaving our galaxy, that seems like it would need to be a lot. I mean, it's got to get the Eddington ratio up to one, at which point it would in theory have escape velocity of a sense. You know, what's crazy is there's a, there's a 2019 paper, radiation pressure driven dust transport to galaxy halos. Oh, Maybe it really is the case that you can blow out dust into the circumgalactic medium purely through the strength of this radiation outflow. That's insane. That's what I can ascertain from the paper in the Astrobite is the theory, yeah. That's really cool. It is really cool. All right, so quick recap. First possible theory, the dust is being ejected maybe out of the galaxy, and radiation pressure might be able to do that. Even if dust is being ejected really fast, if there's a production of dust in the galaxy that exceeds that rate, it wouldn't matter, right? You could be removing all the dust, but if you produced more, like my apartment for some reason, <laughs> then it wouldn't matter. I even have a HEPA filter running all the time, and I get so much dust. Okay, so theory two is that the dust is being ejected in different regions than the UV light. And so the UV light that Webb saw as blue just doesn't come from regions of the galaxy where there's a lot of dust. The location of the UV emission that is redshifted into the blue is diffuse interstellar medium. So this is gas that is collapsing. And it's possible the dust is then collected not in that region, but in dense molecular clouds. So sort of pockets kept separate from the location of the UV emission. Remember, molecular clouds, which form stars, have to be super cold. So they don't emit a lot of light till they actually begin to form a protostar. And what the authors did is they made a prediction for the flux that would be seen in the far infrared. And another group using ALMA actually looked at one of these objects and found their upper limit was lower than the prediction produced by the authors of this paper. So that would indicate, no, theory two doesn't actually work for this one object of the dozens that have been discovered by Webb. Obviously, a lot more work is needed on this. Doing all my observations of all of these blue monsters is an obvious first step to rule out whether or not it's possible that the gas is in a different part of the galaxy. And then there's a good amount of modeling work that I think still needs to be done on dust creation and ejection. They explored you know, how much dust would be created, and it seems like most of the blue monsters would avoid creating more dust than they eject, but there's still a lot to be done here. Is it weird that there are multiple galaxies clumped together that are like this? Or is it normal to have a clump of starburst galaxies? I don't know that these are actually clumped. I think they're all very high redshift. Ah. But I don't know that they're actually close together. Even if they're close in the sky, I don't know if they're co-located in space. I, I don't know for sure. But I don't think so. It does make you think about all of the different connected feedback processes associated with different scales and different environments. I mean, I wonder if 
a more thorough understanding of the regions surrounding these galaxies. Obviously, there aren't a ton of stars there, so they wouldn't be super bright. But if you could resolve what the gas is doing in the surrounding region, that would tell you more about what kind of star formation rates you get within the galaxy itself and exactly what's going in and out. Yeah, I don't know even how you would do that. But if you could do like the full accounting for where all the dust is, yeah, that's a cool idea. That's a great bite. Thanks, Will. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Is it time for a dust fact? Yes, it is always time for a dust fact. (laughs) It's been a long time. Oh, I've been waiting all episode. Okay, here's a cool dust fact. 40,000 tons, that's 40 million kilograms, give or take, of cosmic dust falls on the Earth each year. So these are mostly micrometeorites is what they're called. But it's dust. It's really small particles. So question for you. 40 million kilograms. Do you think the total amount of dust produced by people on Earth is more or less than that? What do we mean by produced by people? Household dust. I would think more. I would think more too. There's a lot of us. There are a lot of people and you are right. It is a lot more. It's hard to get a good estimate for how much dust. So I did my best estimate and it sounds like over a thousand times more that households produce about 50 billion kilograms of dust per year compared to the 40 million falling on the earth. We're producing the most dust on earth. So what you're saying is when I invite people over and my place is dusty, I can't use the astrophysical excuse anymore. Oh, you know, supernovae. You know how it goes. (laughs) You cannot. (laughs) Okay, let's get into some one-sentence summaries. Alex, what's your one-sentence summary? Gaia's incredible data releases continued to dissect the Milky Way, and they found that the spine of our local arm is as straight as an arrow. What about you, Will? If you want to dress up as a real blue monster for Halloween, you might have to give away dust to trick-or-treaters in order to be astronomically accurate. That's nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. You're that house. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a box of raisins and a little bag of dust. Oh my gosh, no, not raisins. Raisins are candy. No! Raisins are abominations. It's like the opposite of public outreach. When you want people not to go into astronomy, you give them a bag of dust at Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Just to wrap up with a discussion question, since we got a little bit overboard with our cobwebs, skeletons, (laughs) and monsters... Does dust impact our ability to see other features of a galaxy? Yes. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's interesting the way that it's phrased, because I think a lot of times the features associated with dust are hard to see. Of course, reddening and extinction can mess up our estimates for the shape of like optical, like what the stars are doing and where the highly star-forming regions are in a galaxy. But at the same time, like, The JWST recently released infrared images of spiral galaxies have shown structure associated with dust that we've really never seen before. That's why all these things look so like spooky and otherworldly, because it's just a vision into what the galaxy is doing in a way that we've never seen it before. So I do think that it it impacts our ability to see other features, but I also think that like the structure of dust itself 
is a thing that we've been unable to see for a really long time and can tell you a lot about the evolution of the galaxy. This is one of those areas that Webb was really touted as the, the next generation level of science where Hubble just is, is stuck in the dark seeing the dust and Webb can, can see it and use it as a tracer. So yeah, I think you're right on, Alex. Yeah, whenever people talk about dusk, at least it seems like they're always saying that it's blocking something else that they want to see. So I think that you're right. It probably is good to think about it as a feature itself too. Last question, I promise. What's your favorite Halloween candy? And if it's raisins, you're canceled. <laughs> Speak wisely, Will. <laughs> Kit Kats. No matter what, I will always eat a Kit Kat. You know, I was always the kid trading other people for their Kit Kats. Reese's, get rid of them. I don't care about them. That's probably controversial. No, Reese's are so good. <laughs> nah, I don't need them. Give me the Kit Kats. As the, the resident peanut allergy kid, I can have neither, so. So where does that leave you? That leaves me with something that's uh, like gummy or sour. As a kid, my favorite were sprees. I don't like them very much now. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes change, you know? I am one of those people that really love warheads. Mm. I like to suck off the sour part and then basically throw away the like actual candy. <laughs> I just want to wreck my mouth with something sour. Um, but I love Reese's. Like the normal, the normal candy, I love Reese's. That concludes episode 62 of Astro Soundbites, Skeletons and Monsters. If you want to read the Astro Bites we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, check out all of them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. did the vampire read the newspaper? He heard it had great circulation. <laughs> <laughs>